Amen. It's great to see everybody uh, this morning. And uh, if you're here for the first time, I want to welcome you and thank you so much for joining us. We are uh, the last Sunday of the month here. Um, what we're trying to do is uh, we're, we are having a picnic actually after church uh, today. So uh, if you were not prepared for that or planning on that, please stay afterwards and hang out with us a little bit. Um, but, you know, one of our core values here as a church is family, that we would, in every life stage, we're doing life together as we're helping each other uh, get closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And so uh, for that reason, we are, uh, you know, trying to develop a, a habit within the church to spend time together. And uh, we're so busy many times that sometimes you just got to put it on the calendar and be intentional about it. So we're saying we're going to force family in the church. I want to force you to be family. You know, just kidding. Um, but we want uh, to invite you to join us today. We're going to be out on the lawn, and so uh, that's why I'm, uh, you know, we're going to have an abbreviated service here, and I'm dressed a little bit more casually. Uh, last time we did this, I was in my dad shorts, the cargo shorts, and the tennis shoes, and and today my wife was like, ah, no, can you like just no. <laughs> I love my wife, man. She, like, takes care of me. And then I had a polo shirt on. She's like, no, nah, can you do a button-up? And I had my sneakers. I was wearing my sneakers. She's like, no, nah, can you just wear your regular shoes? Like, you know, just helping me out. And so, uh, anyway, to God be the glory on that. Um, we are in the midst of this uh, sermon series called Uncomfortable, Living Life Jesus' Way. And uh, the idea that we've uh, been talking about is... Uh, this idea that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. That this is what we have been, that this is what we've been called to be and to experience. That Jesus calls us into a life. John the Apostle records Jesus saying, man, I want them to have life and, and to have it to the full. Uh, that true life to the full where you experience all that He wants for you as you were intentionally, uh, or originally intended to experience. But this teachings and His and his way is definitely outside of our comfort zone. It requires trusting in him, relying on his uh, truths, understanding uh, the calling to follow him. Uh, the standard being so high that the only way to live it out is to do so in Christ, in him, aligning our will with Jesus. Um, so... This week, I was working on this Sunday sermon a little bit, and I had a whole, you know, this is, we're going to talk about a certain a part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then, I don't know, I just had a moment of like, you know what? There are, there are some things, there are some, um, in our world, as well as in the church, that I feel like I'm going to have to repeat our title of last week, which is Uncomfortable Love. <laughs> I, I was I was on the verge of talking about uncomfortable truths and some of the truths that are very you know cause tension as a Christian, uh, especially in our world today. But I thought to myself, you know, there there is so much happening in the world. We talked about uncomfortable love last week. I feel like this week I want to do a part two on it. Um, the thought that I shared last Sunday was here: that love isn't a feeling; it's a commitment. That love, the love that Jesus displayed and that he called us into, if we are to embrace his life to the full, is a love that is unconditional, self-sacrificing. It can lead to confusion and being misunderstood, but it has nothing to do with how we feel and more to do with our obedience to him. And I've been reflecting on this idea and this thought and felt like I need, I wanted to address another aspect of this uncomfortable love that is so, it, it just stretches us. And it's such a high calling that it takes us into a place where we would all sit back and agree this is impossible to do without God. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Our Father in heaven, we want to come before you uh, this morning thanking you so much for your word and how your word provides guidance. It provides direction for our lives. I pray that you would open our minds today, that you would open our hearts today to what your word uh, and your spirit is trying to speak and communicate to each one of us today. 
Father, thank you so much for the community of believers. Thank you so much for the relationships that we can have in Christ. Uh, Father, I pray that we will continue to grow in him, that we would continue to embrace a life to the full that you want for us, God. Thank you so much for being the perfect, the perfect father. I do want to say a special prayer for our dear brother, Les Leiby. Uh, he had to be taken into the emergency room uh, this morning. Uh, he's an older brother in the Lord and um, uh, in his uh, in his 80s and uh, has had different physical health challenges. And uh, and yet whenever we see him here, he's such a light, such a joy, uh, such a big smile and encouraging soul. And we just want to put him before you, that you would um, be with him and comfort him and help him. Uh, heal him of whatever is, is needed, and uh, I pray that you would uh, be with his wife, Trish, as well, and thank you so much for Les and Trish. We love them so much. Uh, we pray, we put them before you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, I read this last week, but I didn't really camp on it too much, so we're going to camp on it a little bit more today. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, and this is, this is Jesus, you know, he's taking the law, the Old Testament law, and he's saying, no, 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 That's, that was good for then, but what I'm going to speak to you is actually the heart behind what God tried to originally communicate with you in the beginning. I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet your only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we talked about this uh, this idea of perfection and you know be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect and that word meaning whole and mature and and grown up in him complete in him and this is what Jesus is referring to like listen this is the standard you you see the standard of the pharisees as perfection but God's calling you to be like him to be holy to be complete like him that's who he wants you to be and part of being that way is loving those who are difficult to love. Jesus calls his follower to love your enemy. That God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. How do you really feel about that? Honestly, when I'm thinking about this, the idea that God causes, will bless the good as much as he may the evil just because he wants to, that bothers me. It tests my perspective of justice. I just don't think that's right. I'm over here trying to do what's right and live in alignment with Christ's teachings. And yet that guy over there is getting more success or more wealth or more relationships or whatever. And he's not even following Jesus. That's unfair. You ever felt that way before? You ever see your neighbor or your coworker, or your boss, or your friend at school, your classmate, and you're just like, they have no cares in the world. I'm over here paranoid that I'm disobeying the word all the time. And yet God is blessing them, and I don't feel like he's blessing me, and you get in a funk. You ever been in a funk before? And it's so unfair. And yet Jesus calls his followers to pray for their enemies. To pray for your enemies, for those who have caused harm, who have injured you, to pray for them, to love them. And so you've been verbally abused and you've been emotionally abused. So you pray for your enemy. So you've been cheated on or cheated out of a business deal. You pray for your enemy. So you're being, you've been misunderstood and falsely accused. That you would love and pray for your enemy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? And, and this may be a little bit of a touchy subject here, but you know, we just 
this month, right, was the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Everybody remembers where they were during that time. I remember very specifically. And the human nature in every American and every American Christian was, we need to counterattack. We need to bomb them. We need to find them and kill everybody that did. You know what I mean? This was every American. Every, and, and, and yes, this is, this is the emotion that it aroused. And it's still today for some. It's like, no, this is, this is the right thing that we did was the counterattack. And yet Jesus would call the Christian the American Christian to say, how often did you pray for bin Laden? and Al-Qaeda, and ISIS now. I don't even like saying that. Do you see what I'm saying? This is the tension of, a, of an American Christian to practically live this out. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be insensitive to those who have lost relatives because of these wars, but, but I am saying... Jesus has called us to something a little bit higher than what we have lived or experienced or think because life begins at the end of your comfort zone. That's not comfortable. To pray for my enemy, to love, for, love my enemy, someone who has hurt me, someone who has, who has damaged me, Someone has hurt my country, who has damaged my country. To love that person? We don't like this. We want justice. We want that individual to feel our pain. We want that group of people to be punished for what they've done. And Jesus comes on the scene in front of his own community who are being oppressed by a Roman government and are persecuted for their Jewish faith. And he says, love your enemy and pray for them. I'm here to teach you, he says. I'm, I'm bringing you into a love that your heavenly Father has displayed for you over and over and over again and that he will continue through me to display for you once I get to the cross. And this, I'm telling you guys, this is true life. And it's life to the full. And it's life as you were originally intended to live. Matthew takes this idea and he continues and he records something two chapters later, part of the same uh, sermon of teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 in verse 1. He says, Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take this speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. People love to quote this. You can't judge me. The Bible says, don't judge. Listen, let, let me break it down for you a little bit. You're going to always judge. <laughs> I had to judge myself this morning and what I was going to wear for church. You know, you're always going to make a judgment call. The point here is not don't judge, don't don't have don't have a judgment but the point is don't be a judgment have a judgmental attitude he's talking about the attitudes of the heart cuz look at this he's saying you're going to you're going to look at the speck in your brother's eye you're going to see the speck at least in your eyes you're going to see it it's like yeah it's a big speck but his point is don't live your life that way always looking for the specks pay attention to what's going on in your life Another way of saying this would be do not judge others until you're prepared to be judged by the same standard. And then when you exercise judgment, because you will, toward others, do it with humility. 
This is kind of a summary of what Jesus is trying to say here. So you're trying to help your brother, but you don't, but you, but don't do it unless you're holding yourself to the same standard, right? Why is it that, you know, I mean, think about our world today. How much hypocrisy do we see in our world today? How tragic has it been? I don't know about you, how you have felt, but I grew up watching Bill Cosby. I did. And I loved the show. And then you see him going through everything and, and everything that's happened and transpired. And man, what happens in your heart when you see somebody like that? Are you kidding? I can't ever trust anybody ever again, you know? And what he did was, right? What was he doing? He was portraying an image, maybe even trying to remove some specks out of people's eyes in his career. And yet his whole life, he had a huge log blocking him. What does this do to us? We want justice, right? Think about your life. You see the speck, but you're not willing to hold yourself to the same standard. It's one thing to exercise judgment and quite another to be judgmental in your attitude. Jesus is saying, be careful. Be careful not to hold others to a standard that you're not willing to be under yourself. And that's uncomfortable, is it not? We're pretty good at telling other people what to do and how they can live and how they should change and when maybe we should be focusing on how we live before calling others to change because no one likes a hypocrite. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German uh, church scholar, was imprisoned for his faith uh, by the Nazi regime, regime and actually uh, murdered for his faith as well. He says this, judging others makes us blind, whereas love is illuminating. By judging others, we blind ourselves to our own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. I love that idea. By judging others, by having a judgmental attitude towards others, I'm blinding myself to my own evil and to the grace which others are just as entitled to as we are. But we don't like that. Because when we've been wronged, and when we've been injured, and when we've been damaged by somebody, when we've been a victim by somebody else, we want, we don't want, we, there's no grace. I should have the grace, not them, not that person. And Jesus' calling is so high. Listen, you will always have to make judgment calls, but you can make judgment calls without being judgmental. Amen, church? You will have to take that speck out of your brother's eye eventually. But as you're making that judgment, make sure you're looking at yourself as well. This is so difficult. It is so hard to be in a conversation with someone that you know is in the wrong, but be able in humility to find something to take responsibility for. Can I give you a nugget for the married, for, for married couples here? Let me give you a little nugget. Something that Marina and I like to do and share with young marrieds and people preparing themselves to get married are what we call the Ten Commandments of Fighting Fairly. Because in a marriage, you're going to fight. But you can fight fairly. Each one gets a shot. You know what I'm saying? There's rounds. There's, you know... And so the first one actually is commandment number one, which goes along the lines with this, is you are always at fault. The percentage does not matter. And so in a marriage, the idea there is the husband may be 99% in the wrong. And all the sisters say, amen, that's right. But the wife has the responsibility to still take responsibility for that 1%. Amen? 
And some of the wiser here are like, well, mostly it's 0.2%, but I'll take the one. No, you that 0.2%, you take responsibility for that because that's your fault in creating this situation. Does that make sense? How much, sisters, how much humility does that require of you? You know? Now, the husbands, same thing with the husbands. You have 0.5%. You know your wife. Now you got her. You got her. She's in the wrong, but you are still held to a standard to be like Christ and to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And so you say, I can take responsibility for that because I'm always at fault. The percentage does not matter. I believe with all my heart that translates into any relationship in the body of Christ. That you can be in conflict with somebody else, that you can have a, a disagreement with somebody else, that it can cause emotions uh, to, to, to get the best of you, but that you are still called to remove the plank out of your eye, to take responsibility for that 0.5%. Acknowledge it. Take responsibility for it. And then move forward. Loving your enemy, praying for them, looking at yourself before looking at the fault of someone else, this is uncomfortable. And this is not what we are taught in the world. This goes against the depths of our human nature. But this is the example that Jesus sets for us and what he calls us to. One of the most uncomfortable teachings of Jesus has to do with relationships and forgiveness amidst conflict. And what I, what I want to do today is we're going to read an interaction that Jesus has, that, Pete, that Matthew records for us. And what Jesus calls us to, and what we're going to see is, man, we, we will not experience what Jesus has for us unless we are able to embrace this teaching. So you take the do not judge and the spec thing kind of as a backdrop for what we're going to read here. Matthew records a time when Jesus is teaching. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. He records a time when, when Jesus is teaching. And in the beginning of the chapter, Jesus takes a child on his lap and he says, listen, if someone had asked him, who's going to be great in your kingdom? And, and Jesus takes this child and says, you need to become like a child. You need to become a child just like this child if you want to be great in the kingdom. A child. Think about a child, humble, trusting the parent wholeheartedly, understanding their need for the parent, being willing to allow God to send and use his people to influence you. There's a humility about a child. And Jesus says, become like this and you'll be great in the kingdom. You'll en- Not only will you be great in the kingdom, but you'll be able to enter the kingdom if you become more and more like this child. Then he gets into a teaching about causing people to stumble and sin and what to do when someone sins against you in the gathering of his followers. You know, he says to confront them one-on-one and then if they don't listen to you, then to take somebody with you as a witness. And if they don't listen to that, then to tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, to treat them like a pagan or a tax collector, which side note, how did Jesus treat pagans and tax collectors? He hung out with them. He spent time with them. He was their friend. That's a whole other sermon for a whole other time. Peter, after listening to all that Jesus was saying, I think Peter was kind of freaking out. And in Matthew 18, in verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now you got to love Peter. He's curious. But he's kind of curious about the wrong thing. He's sort of like, what's the minimum? Once, twice, seven times. Seven's a holy number, right? Seven times. So he's like, you know, what? what's the bare minimum I can do to be in a good standing with you and with God? And Jesus answered in verse 22, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Double holy. You know what I'm saying? 77 times. You know, it's funny. This account is recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 17. And he says that when the apostles heard this, 
they responded, increase our faith. And I always found that to be funny because I would feel the same way. If somebody came up to me over and over again in one day and said, I repent. And I'm called to forgive them. And they go off and mess around again. They come back in the same day and they say, I repent. And I forgive them again. And they go off and mess around. They come back again. I repent. I forgive them again. At one point or another, you're just like, dude, are you really getting repentance? I don't really know. But Jesus said, that's not the point. Because what I tell you is no matter how many times that person says, I repent, your responsibility as my follower is to forgive. That's uncomfortable. I don't like that. That's unfair. I want to flip this podium over. Like, that's no! You don't get it, Jesus. You don't understand what they're doing. You don't understand what they've done to me. And so Matthew Matthew continues recording what Jesus says. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven... Jesus, you know, let me help you out, Peter. The kingdom of heaven, verse 23, is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants... As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 silver coins... He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. And Jesus dropped the mic and walked off. (laughs) To forgive someone not seven times, but 77 times. Peter is asking the wrong question here. He's he's more concerned and focused on, on what his standing is and where he's at. And he's not understanding Jesus' calling to completely trust and follow him. Jesus uses this opportunity to tell this incredible story that describes what he had spoken about in Matthew 7, about having judgmental, be careful to have judgmental attitudes and removing the speck in someone's eye. This servant had been forgiven of a great debt and yet was unable to forgive a small debt owed to him by someone else. Jesus' standard of forgiveness is unfair And does not look like justice. And this, this is uncomfortable. I I don't know about you. I have a hard time with this. That person needs to be punished. They need to really get it in order to get my forgiveness. Your forgiveness from a love that is reflected from Jesus' love has nothing to do with how you feel, but more so to do with your faith and your trust in His commands. And I don't like that. And I don't, I want to throw a temper tantrum about that. No, God, that's not fair. That's unfair. And Jesus is not concerned about fairness. He's not. He's not concerned about fairness. Jesus is concerned about your heart and my heart. Will we trust him 
in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the conflict, will we trust His ways? Will we embrace this life to the full? Living life Jesus' way at the end of your comfort zone. This book that we've been, I've been reading, this un, book called Uncomfortable, the author writes this. He says, Love that is only convenient and conditional is not love. To love is to go out of your way, to be inconvenienced, to sacrifice for the sake of another. Nadine Collier, whose mother Ethel was one of the nine victims in the 2015 church massacre in Charleston, South Carolina, was given the chance to address her mother's killer. And she said, quote, you took something very precious away from me. I will never get to talk to her ever again. But I forgive and have mercy on your soul. If God forgives you, I forgive you, end quote. Nelson Mandela, after being in prison for 27 years on Robben Island, and being freed and then eventually becoming the president of South Africa, he once wrote this. He said, forgiveness liberates the soul. It removes fear. That is why it is such a powerful weapon. I love that. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, he who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. It is impossible even to begin the act of loving one's enemies without the prior acceptance of the necessity over and over again of forgiving those who inflict evil and injury upon us. These people that I just referenced understood that there is a freedom when it comes to forgiveness. That the individual who holds on to wrongs and grudges, is trapped by potential hate and bitterness and is never able to grow or experience what God has for you. This is why Jesus was so serious about forgiveness and the discomfort of it. He knew that the inability to forgive from the heart would lead to a person not being able to experience full life and not able to understand the amount of forgiveness that person had received through Christ and His sacrifice. And Jesus knew if you stayed there, if you stay there, you, you won't get it. That's why I'm not too concerned about how you feel necessarily, although I love you and I, I understand you've been hurt. I, I'm more concerned about will you trust me? Will you be able to forgive 77 times. Because the issue is your heart. It's my heart. Paul, the apostle, went around the Mediterranean world and planted, started different gatherings. You know, we talked about this, different assemblies, ecclesias, different churches of Jesus' followers, disciples of Christ. One of the churches, the Corinthian church, was a, was a mess. There was just... Issue after issue after issue with this particular church. And Paul is amazing. He doesn't go in there and start a new church. He deals with the issues. He confronts the issues. He teaches. He trains. He helps people understand what Jesus has called them to. And he expresses his love. He says, I love you. I've laid, I'm going to lay down my life for you. He, there's a very loving appeal that he makes to the Corinthian church. But one of the issues that was happening is that there were, there, there were legal disputes happening in the body of Christ to where followers of Jesus were not putting into practice uh, Matthew 18 or Matthew 7. Instead, they had gone to a point where they were taking each other to court, to the legal system. And Paul addresses the issue. He says, what are you doing? This is, don't you have somebody wise in the church to be able to handle this? And you're doing this in front of unbelievers? In other words, this waters down and it taints your witness to the world that you're taking each other to court. And he writes this in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 7. 
The very fact, he says to the church, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong and you do this to your brothers and sisters. What? Look at what Paul is saying. Why not rather be wronged and cheat? Are you kidding me? Paul, you don't understand. You don't get it. She messed me up. He cheated me. They slandered my, my character. You don't get it. And Paul is appealing to them, saying that for the sake of peace and unity in the community of faith, why not turn the other cheek? This is, this is kind of Paul's way of, of putting into practice what Jesus had originally said about loving your enemies and praying for them and not having a judgmental attitude. He's saying, why not, why not be wronged for the sake of unity in the community of faith? Why not turn the other cheek? Be wrong, be cheated in order to keep peace in the body of Christ. And that's uncomfortable. And that's unfair. And that's what Jesus calls us to. You know, sometimes we don't want to forgive because it makes us vulnerable. It may feel like we are showing weakness. I have a battle with this. I, I personally... I like to be honest and be, I love transparency. I want openness in dialogue. And what has happened to me in the past, and I think, and I don't know what it is, um, you know, uh, maybe it's just my way of talking or communicating at times. And uh, what happens is sometimes my, vul- my vulnerability personally in relationships or even publicly here uh, can be taken out of context and words twisted, and you get the tweet soundbite of what Reuben said versus what he actually said. Does that make sense? And so what it causes then is uh, me not wanting to be vulnerable. Does that make sense? Uh, it causes a, 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 a wall at times where I don't, I, I'm afraid to be vulnerable. Because what will they say? What will they, what will they take? What now will they, will, will be taken out of context because Reuben said so? And part of it is just the role that, that I serve here in the church. And I understand that. I, I, I'm, I'm completely aware of that. But this is my battle. This is a battle. Will they judge us? Will they, you know, think that we're not enough? Will they, you know, Whatever it is. And it, it, it's, and for somebody who likes to talk about, oh yeah, I just got, you know, I'm just upset about everything right now. Like I am, uh, you, 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 if you know me, I am very open book about stuff to the point where people have said, Rue, you know, chill out, bro, you know? <laughs> but, but there is a level of vulnerability sometimes I'm just, man, it's so hard for me to get to because of the fear. And it's funny, in my life, I've not been the one to have to dispense forgiveness. I've been the one always asking for forgiveness, you know, in different relationships and, you know, public settings like this. Hey, I, I said something I wasn't supposed to say, <laughs> whatever it is. And man, you feel weak when you do that. You feel a loss of control, you know, when you do something like that. And yet Jesus is calling me to forgive 77 times. To look at the plank before removing the speck. He's calling me to what he's calling you to. He's calling all of us to. A lot, of, And I want to encourage us. And I'm learning this. You know, I think we're all kind of projects here, right? I think God is continually molding us and changing us and transforming us. And I'm so thankful for that. But I, w- I do want to encourage us, man, I, I don't want fear to prevent me from vulnerability and honesty and openness and, does that make sense? And forgiveness. Because if I allow fear to prevent me from forgiveness, whether it be dispensing it or asking for it, 
I will not experience what Jesus has for me. And I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss out. I don't want my kids to miss out. I love this church. I don't want this church to miss out on what Jesus has for us. And so I want to call us to embrace the uncomfortable, to show and share forgiveness, even though it may feel too vulnerable for us. To remind ourselves that the Christian should have so much faith in Christ, so much trust in Christ, that he or she will be able to forgive and love even when it doesn't make sense. Because that's what he's calling us to. And that when we're forgiving and we're vulnerable and we may feel weak, that we would remember the words of Paul. That when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because love isn't a feeling. It's a commitment. It's a decision. Look at the example of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in Romans 5, verse 6. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Who did He die for? Not the godly, but the ungodly. Not good people, but sinners. Next time you're in a conflict with someone or feel maligned by someone, think about Jesus who decided to lay down his life for people that would possibly reject him. What does love require of us then? You know, for those of you who are here who maybe find yourselves outside of the faith, or trying to figure out your faith, trying to like come back to it or, or understand it. I would tell you, you know, in the depth of your heart, you know that forgiveness changes everything. You may want justice, but in reality, what you need is forgiveness. So I would question you then, what does love require of you? For the Christian, for the follower of Jesus, I would challenge you to look at your life before you start looking at others. What this world needs around us is not your judgment, but for you and I to display a life of grace and forgiveness. Can you imagine how different our world would be if we lived out more graciously than judgmentally? Can you imagine the Christians on social media dispensing grace rather than judgment? In particular, this past week regarding the whole court trial of Kavanaugh and everything like that. I've seen more Christians be so politicized and polarized by this event and speaking their opinion instead of trying to find where the gospel can fit and change everything in this situation. And the world wants you to pull you in. He, the world wants to pull us in into debate after debate after debate. When we're called to forgive 77 times and to love our enemy, and to pray for those who persecute us. But where's the justice in all that? Don't worry about justice. God will always bring about his justice. God will. Have, do you trust God? 
But what about the victims? What about this woman? What about that man? What about... God will bring about his justice. You, follower of Jesus, dispense grace. Not your opinions. Dispense grace and forgiveness and love. And it will change everything. Philip Yancey wrote a book, Christian author. I love this quote, Vanishing Grace. He says, The church is, above all, a place to receive grace. It brings forgiven people together with the aim of equipping us to dispense grace to others. This is church. Forgiven people gathered here today, being equipped by God's word, by our singing, by our fellowship with one another, to leave here and be launched back into the world to dispense grace to others. What our world needs the most today is not our opinions, not our justice. The world needs our grace. Not just our grace. The world needs God's forgiveness and the ability to love, to forgive, even when it doesn't make sense. Amen? I want to close. We're going to take communion, but I want to close with, 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 a, with um, something that Martin Luther King Jr. said. He preached a sermon about loving enemies in November of 1957. And then a month later, on Christmas Day of 1957, he preached pretty much the same sermon, uh, changed it up a little bit. But some of, he, he says something so powerful at part of his sermon that I wanted to communicate with us today because it, it falls in line with what does love require of us, an uncomfortable love. So bear with me as I read this. It's not, it's not on the slide. It's just I'm going to read it. Pay attention to what he says, and then we're going to close out our time. He says, quote, To our most bitter opponents, we say, We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We shall meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. Throw us in jail and we shall still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and we shall still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our community at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead and we shall still love you. But be ye assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer. One day, we shall win freedom, but not only for ourselves. We shall so appeal to your heart and conscience that we shall win you in the process. And our victory will be a double victory. This is what love required of the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King Jr. preached this sermon. How much more so for God's people, His Jesus movement, dispensing of grace, loving and forgiving when it may not make sense to the world around us, experiencing life to the full as Jesus has promised when we align ourselves with Him and uncomfortable love. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for us. It wasn't fair. It wasn't just. He was falsely accused. He was flogged. He was spit on. He was beaten. He had a crown of thorns on his head. He was taken to a cross. He was hung on the cross. And as he saw soldiers mocking him and Pharisees mocking him and trading, trading his clothes and throwing, casting lots to, to get his clothes. He prays for them and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And with that example, as we take communion, Lord, as we take the bread that represents the body of Christ, as we take the cup that represents the blood of Christ, Help us to reflect and think about Jesus. Sinless, unblemished, yet obedient to your will. Understanding your bigger plan that you would provide forgiveness and salvation and freedom to the world through his death and his resurrection. I pray with all my heart that your people here gathered today would leave here in awe of Jesus and following his teachings to live a life to the full where we are able to love as he has loved us. That we are able to love our enemies to love those who have hurt us or maligned us or slandered us or injured us or damaged us, that we would able be able to forgive as you have forgiven us. Change our minds today. Help us to be grace dispensers in the world. And Father, I pray that people would respond because of your people's here, your people's love for one another and for our fellow man. We praise you. We honor you. We need you. We are desperate for you. Help us to pursue uncomfortable love. In Jesus' name, amen.